0: welcome to a Weird in the Wade bonus episode. A shorter and hopefully sweet snapshot of something spooky or unexplained. A time for tales or deeper delves into the stories behind the podcast. Sometimes it's just an opportunity to explore the history or the otherworldly in a shorter form. I came across today's story in a Victorian newspaper when researching the Grey Lady of Silso for last month's mini-episode. It was such a strange little article. It made me pause and really ponder. When this episode is released, I'll be in Scotland visiting Edinburgh, Fife and Aberdeen and there's a strange connection with Aberdeen in this little story. Even though it’s set in Luton in Bedfordshire, I’ll explore that connection after telling you the strange little tale of a very unusual ghost. I'm Nat Doig and welcome to a Weird in the Wade bonus episode: The Noon Tide Hag. story takes place in Luton in November 1848. For the 1840s, think women with ringleted hair, big bonnets and even bigger skirts. Men went big too with top hats and tails, though the characters in our story were not likely to be wearing such finery. The Hartford Mercury and Reformer runs our story on Saturday the 18th of November as its first under the heading of Bedfordshire. The story is scant on detail and devotes almost half of the space to literary allusions and speculation on the nature of the apparition, as well as wondering who may or may not be able to shed further light on it all. But here is my reimagining of what took place, based on the news article. It was a cold November morning when the children from the Luton workhouse made their way into the town centre to attend a service in the rather grand St Mary's Church. They hurried down George Street, where just the other day there'd been a crash between two horse-drawn carriages. The town was still abuzz with talk of it. One of the children, Martin, wondered about the crash as he walked. He'd heard that one of the injured horses had its legs bandaged with ribbons. He imagined the pony, its legs like colorful maypoles, trotting away in front of him. He liked to daydream, but was careful to not let himself get carried away. He needed his wits about him for life in the workhouse. It wasn't his first time there. His father and younger sister, Bess, had been admitted with him on this occasion. His eldest brother, James, unable to support them all any longer. His father refusing to give up the drink. It was all just inevitable. They were more often in the workhouse than not over the last couple of years. but he knew that once James was more established he'd be back for him and Bess. Martin could see Bess ahead of him, her fair head bobbing as she walked with the other girls. It was his only real chance to see her when they came down to the church together. He watched her all the way. But once in the church, Martin was positioned just out of sight of Bess So he concentrated on his singing and pretending to listen to the sermon whilst he watched the winter light seep through the stained glass windows casting cold shards of blue on the grey stone floor. Martin was a good boy. He tried to be helpful and polite and the masters and the guardians of the workhouse recognised it. On this cold morning, Master Goldstraw was shepherding them along with a couple of trusted adult workhouse inmates. Impressed by Martin's steady walking, the attention he paid to the sermon, and in particular Martin's sweet singing voice, Master Goldstraw decided to reward him by setting Martin the task of tidying up the church after the service. This was a particular privilege because not only did the task have to be performed alone, and being alone was a rare treat in the workhouse, it also meant Martin would get to walk with Master Goldstraw back to the workhouse, once the master had finished conversing with the curate. Martin had been given this task before, and he knew what to do. He had to lug the wooden forms, low benches like the ones in school, from the main church back into a large side chapel. The forms weren't too heavy for Martin to drag, but it did prove trickier when he had to heave them up a couple of steps into the side chapel. But he got the first one up there, and in place and scampered back down into the main church to grab the next one. He liked the old church, how it made every sound, even the slightest rustle, echo. He liked the strange statues of the dead that lurked about the church, shrouded in shadow. He even liked the smell of the church, old hymn books, dust, candle wax, and something else unique to churches, something untouchable and distant maybe the smell of heaven he thought as he picked up the end of the next form he dragged the second form behind him his feet pattering across the stone flags the wooden form bumping along as he went he reached the stairs and jumped up onto the first but something held him back he nearly toppled backwards he tugged at the form again but it would not budge it was hard to turn around in that position him on the first step with the bench balanced behind him, a little like a seesaw. But he turned his head as he lowered the end of the form he was holding onto the step. Out of the corner of his eye he thought he saw something at the end of the form. Oh, that's it, he thought. Another boy must be holding it, preventing him from doing his work. A prank maybe. So he swung around ready to address this meddler, only to see an unusually tall old woman dressed all in white with long lank hair sitting on the end of the bench even though it was at an angle on a slope and clearly not there to be sat on she was staring straight ahead as if he was not there her straggly hair falling over the side of her face obscuring it from him she was no gentlewoman visiting the church and she was not from the workhouse he began to tug at the hem of his woolen jacket as he wondered what to do. He tried to pick up the bench again, only gently, but the woman did not seem to notice nor to care. He thought of Master Goldstraw returning, sherry on his breath and keen to head back to the workhouse. He had to get this job done swiftly. He tugged again at the form, but it would not budge, nor would the creepy old woman. So he gathered up his courage and in a voice that came out far louder than he had intended, Martin said, please lady, can you move? At first, she stayed perfectly still and Martin was about to open his mouth again when with a sudden jerk the woman snapped her head round to face him. Then Martin saw that this was not a woman nor a mortal human the tangled strands of drab hair framed a skeletal face. Later Martin would say if there was skin on that face, it was the colour of old bones. He could see no eyes, just wells of darkness which at their very pit glowed with an ember not of light, but of something even blacker than the darkest night. As the creature opened her mouth, Her lips were the shade of yellow that you only see on old bruises, and they seemed to stick together with a stringy gunk. Martin never heard what she rasped at him, because the sound was like Satan himself raking the ashes of hell, and he fell into a swoon and fainted. Master Goldstraw found him, and the boy was so pale and collapsed in such a strange aspect, half on the top step, half off, That he felt genuine concern for the boy. Goldstraw called for help and his friend the curate came running. They carried Martin over to a pew where after some time he came round groggily. And it's at this point we must leave Martin's point of view as the article gives us scant enough detail of him as it is. What we do know is that someone tells a newspaper reporter of what Martin witnessed and this someone has decided that Martin saw the noontide hag. Now, my master Goldstraw and his curate friends are my inventions, as is the name Martin for our workhouse boy. The article refers to him only as a workhouse boy. He has no name to them. He is not important. And to be honest, the Noontide hag herself is not that important to the writer either. He provides no description of her. I got to run riot with my imagination to conjure up a creature worthy of creating such fear in a workhouse boy, who must have seen his fair share of horrors. I based his story on that of my great-grandmother and her siblings, who as children often spent time in the workhouse at different times to each other. What the reporter does seem to be interested in is telling us how well-read he is on the subject of ghosts. The author of the article flourishes his literary and historical knowledge to tell us that Sir Walter Scott has written about such a noontide hag, but that the reporter has struggled to find mention of such a creature in the works of Reginald Scott's demonology, nor in the pages of the periodical Blackwood. He also claims that the Great Wizard of the North does not mention such apparitions in his extensive works. He goes on to joke that maybe next time, if she could oblige them by sitting on the aisle end of a pew during a church service, the congregation will be able to lay hands on her and get evidence of her corporeal form. It's clear that he's mocking those who have fallen for this ghost story. Demonology was a 16th century tome considered a relic by rational Victorians. Blackwood was a Popular magazine famous at the time for printing gothic and horror fiction. It inspired the Bronte sisters and Charles Dickens. Edgar Allan Poe even satirised its style. And the Great Wizard of the North was a famous stage magician of his time who took to exposing spiritualist charlatans towards the end of his career. In short, it would be like if someone today saw a ghost that they claimed was a noontide hag saying to them, Right, well, I've consulted an old Alistair Crowley book, Danny Robbins, Weird in the Wade podcast, and Darren Brown, but none of them have heard of this noontide hag. Like the reporter, I also tried to find out what I could about noontide hags. And as the reporter notes, Sir Walter Scott mentions them in The Lady of the Lake, a poem published in 1810, set in the Trossachs in Scotland. And part of it concerns a druid hermit called Brian. I'm guessing Brian was a more romantic and unusual name in Scotland in 1810 than it is today. Brian must face a challenge in the desert, a metaphorical one I assume, as I think he's still in the Trossocks at this point, where he has visions of frightful things, as the poem goes on to explain. The desert gave him visions wild such as might suit the spectre's child, where with black cliffs the torrents toil, he watched the wheeling eddies boil, till from their foam his dazzled eyes behind the river demon rise. The mountain mist took form and limb of noontide hag or goblin grim. The midnight wind came wild and dread, swelled with the voices of the dead. And so we have our reference to the noontide hag. Even in Scott's own extensive notes on the poem, we don't find out much more, other than The noontide hag, called in Gaelic Glass Lich, a tall, emaciated, gigantic female figure, is supposed in particular to haunt the district of Neudart. I've searched for further information on the noontide hag and have found extensive references in Eastern European, Ukrainian, Russian, Slavic and even German legends. They're fascinating and deserve their own bonus episode, which I plan to record. But I'm yet to find any specific mention of a noontide hag in Scotland or anywhere else in the British Isles, other than by Sir Walter Scott. Maybe you've heard legends which fit with this apparition or creature and can shed some light on it. Do get in touch with me on social media or through the blog. And finally, I mentioned a link to Aberdeen, where I'm visiting in June. Remember our Great North Wizard, the famous stage magician and debunker of fake mediums? Well, his real name was John Henry Anderson. He was born in Aberdeenshire in 1814. He is credited with popularising magic as a theatrical experience. In 1840, after extensive tours with theatrical companies, he opened the Strand Theatre in London. He also opened a theatre in Glasgow, The City, which burnt down within a year and cost him a great deal of money. He performed in front of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, Tsar Nicholas I, and sell-out crowds across America. He even inspired Houdini, who was born in 1874, the year that Anderson died, but Houdini read about him extensively. It seems appropriate that Anderson was given his stage name, The Wizard of the North, by Sir Walter Scott. Anderson had a turbulent personal life, with mistresses and illegitimate children, whom he acknowledged and supported, so at least he did the right thing by them, if not by his wife. He's buried at St Nicholas's Church in Aberdeen, so maybe I'll visit when I'm up there. If it wasn't for this curious little ghost story set in a church in Luton, I would never read about this pioneer of theatrical magic who also dedicated his time to unmasking frauds who claimed they could contact the dead, and he largely did this by demonstrating how their tricks were performed. We'll never know what happened to that workhouse boy who saw the noontide hag in Luton St Mary's Church. And I'm guessing he would never have thought in a million years that 175 years after his experience, we'd still be talking about it today. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Weird in the Wade. I really appreciate all of you who listen. And if you want show notes, behind the scenes information or just more weird stories, please visit the blog at weirdinthewade.com blog. I'd love to hear from you, so please join in the Weird Conversation on Twitter or Insta at Weird in the Wade. Let me know what you think, or if you have any stories to share, or suggestions for future episodes or bonus episodes. I'd love to hear from you, and thank you again for listening. July's episode is out on Monday the 3rd, and it's all about a spooky wood. Next time, on Weird in the Wade, what's haunting Potton Woods? A strip of the ancient Ampthill Forest just northeast of Biggleswade is associated with strange lights in the sky, hauntings, ghostly voices, and even phantom smells. Is this phenomenon connected to a plane that crashed into the edge of the woods at the end of World War II? Or is there another explanation linked to the area's extensive fruit production? I'll speak with witnesses, paranormal investigators and I travelled to the woods during Bluebell season where I had my own seemingly inexplicable experience which I captured on my field recorder for the podcast. I'll tell you all about it in the next episode of Weird in the Wade. What's haunting Woods? Again, thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Weird in the Wade. This episode was researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. The theme music is by Tess Savagir. Additional sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound. Find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram and at our blog, weirdinthewade.blog. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and you're able to support us, please do share, like and follow our podcast. And if you can, please review it and rate it as it helps other people find the podcast. And finally, if you love the podcast and you'd like to support us and are able to, you can buy the pod a coffee over at coffee.com. That's K O hyphen f i dot com forward forward slash weird in the wade we really appreciate any support that you can give us thank you